Today's teaching text is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verse 18, through chapter 5, verse 2. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain and the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Tom. Well, good morning again. And for those who are new or who I haven't met, I see some uh, faces that I haven't seen before. Um, welcome. My name is Matt. I serve as the senior pastor here at First Free, and I've been gone for a few weeks uh, because my mother has died. My mother uh, passed away, Rita. Um, she was a, a lovely woman who gave of herself in ways that modeled the self-giving love of Jesus to me, and I'm grateful for her life. Um, I'll miss her in ways that I, I don't even realize yet, and uh, I'm obviously still grieving and will be for some time, um, but I did wanted to publicly give thanks for this church community, which I'm grateful to be a part of, um, for the countless of you who were in prayer for Rita and our in prayer for my family. Thank you for those who reached out with cards or with meals uh, or with an encouraging word. Thank you. And for those who were even able to drive down to Joliet for the funeral, thank you. I, I just wanted to say that publicly. Um, <clears throat> as a church, we are entering into a new series called The Way of Jesus which invites us to linger in the most uh, comprehensive collection of the teachings of Jesus that we have. The Sermon on the Mount, which is found in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 5 through 7. And when I say linger there, I mean we'll be in those three 
chapters from now until the day of Pentecost, which is May 28th. So almost four months in three chapters. But if you were paying attention during today's scripture reading, and this isn't a test, don't worry, you won't be in trouble if you weren't, but if you were, you would have noticed that we didn't read any of the Sermon on the Mount today. We stopped right there in chapter 5 at verse 2. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. See, before we dig into these teachings of Jesus, I want to set the stage with what preceded it. His disciples came to him. But then we learned that even before this, before they come to him, he comes to them. In our text today, Jesus comes to four fishermen. And so the question that I want to ask us is what is the call of Jesus on their lives? What's his invitation to these four fishermen? And is it the same invitation to us today? Back in Matthew 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. I'll send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And we hear these wonderful words of what Jesus is doing. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed. And he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. I think we can begin to see a theme Right? What's the call of Jesus on their lives? What is his invitation to these four fishermen and to us? Come, follow me. And this is an interesting invitation for a rabbi to make. Jesus, by the way, in case that language is strange to you, was certainly a rabbi, a Jewish teacher of the way of God. People throughout the Gospels refer to him as rabbi. And yet, he doesn't just invite these fishermen to come and hear his rabbinical teachings. What might have been expected in that culture is the invitation to sit at his feet and learn. To sit at his feet and learn from the rabbi. This is what it would have looked like to learn from a rabbi, which is part of the reason, if you know the story of Mary and Martha, 
It's part of why Martha is so upset at Mary. Uh, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from him, which is a bit improper for a woman in that time. But this is what it looked like. You'd sit at the feet as your rabbi would expound on the scriptures. But is that what Jesus says? Simon, I mean Peter, Andrew, why don't you guys come sit down at my feet and listen to what I have to say? Does he ask them to listen to his teaching, to understand at an intellectual level the religious and ethical dogma that Jesus stands for? No. It's not that he doesn't do any teaching or they don't learn any teaching, but that's not what his call is on their lives. It's not to sit at his feet, but to follow in his footsteps. Come, follow me. It's a different kind of teaching. If you ever did driver's ed, or if you're in it right now, uh, imagine that kind of teaching. It involves some classroom teaching, of course. You need to learn the rules of the road. You need to learn uh, how a car works in some ways, like how you flip on the turn signals and start the engine and things like that. You need to know that a stop sign is a red octagon, a yellow triangle means yield, etc. But reading about shifting gears in a manual transmission and actually shifting the gears are two very different things. You got, there's a feel to it, right? You, you feel what the clutch is doing. You got... You can't just learn that in your head. Or reading about the crazy drivers on Lakeshore Drive and then being cut off in the rain by a driver on Lakeshore Drive is a very different kind of learning. The same is true for the life Jesus offers. It's not just something you can understand in your head or on paper. It's not even something you can just kind of feel in your heart like a, a good feeling about Jesus. It's something you got to feel in your hands, embody with your life. What Jesus offers the first disciples isn't just a set of ideas, but a way of life. The way of Jesus. Come, follow me, what he says. And following Following is dynamic. It implies movement. It implies change. It implies leaving something behind. Christianity isn't primarily about a set of beliefs and ideas. A list of facts that you sort of check yes or no to. Why don't we put up some, some facts there, right? Go ahead, you can put up the next slide. Right, is that primarily what it is? God created the world, check. Heaven is real, sure, check. Dancing is bad, check. Jesus is God's son, check. All right, I did Christianity, I'm good. I'll live however I want. No, Christianity is about following a living person named Jesus the Christ. And when people are alive, they move. If you want to be close to something that moves, you got to move too. You got to follow. The call of Jesus is come follow me. 
not, hey, you should believe in these things so that you get this right, or that you can go to heaven when you die, or so that you can get married in a certain church, or something like that. Come, follow me. Come and be my disciple. The Hebrew word for disciple is talmid. Or the plural, disciples, talmidim. Talmidim. And the, the rest of this teaching, in different parts anyways, I just want to give some credit. Ray Vanderlaan um, is one person who has influenced this teaching. Uh, John Mark Comer, Dallas Willard, a few other names. Just so you know, I'm not saying this is all stuff I figured out on my own. Anyways, Talmudim can be translated as student or follower. Talking about follow me. Not student like I'm a freshman at Loyola or a senior at North Park, but honestly, more like a student uh, studying under a car mechanic or a plumber. Some say the most helpful translation is actually the word uh, apprentice. Talmudim, apprentices to Jesus. And in the time of Jesus, this idea of Talmudim, of discipleship, is is pretty fascinating, I think. Um, So the way schooling would work in Jesus' day is a bit like this. Just about every Jewish child, boys and girls, around the age of five would begin school. Betzifer was the name of that schooling, and it was basically elementary school. But the main thing you'd be studying was the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And you'd even be memorizing large portions of it. The best students had it all memorized by the time they were done. Um, which is insane, and you may feel extreme levels of guilt when you can't even memorize Psalm 23, when I can't even, you know, like I might feel that guilt, enough for you, but let's give ourselves a break a little bit. It was an oral culture. They had to memorize stuff, you know, very different. But, you know, still, we could do a little bit better. Uh, But anyway, so they're memorizing all this scripture because it's the words of life after all. So most of them get that done, which is incredible. Now, once that schooling is done, the majority of people stayed home. Boys would stay home to learn the family trade, perhaps like Zebedee's sons as fishermen. And women would stay home because, unfortunately, that's just the way it was back then, which is terrible. But it was the case. You would stay home, learn the family trade, The best students, though, would continue their study while learning a trade. And that was called Bet Midrash, basically a form of secondary school where they'd move beyond the Torah and you'd start to study the writings, the Old Testament writings, some of the prophets, things like that. And you would even get to the point where you're not just memorizing it, but you're beginning to make your own interpretations, your own applications. You're interacting with the scriptures in a different way. And this was pretty great. That might be like, wow, you did Bet Midrash? You're, you're pretty important in town. But then the best of the best, very few, but the best of the best, would continue on. And the way that they would continue on is they would seek 
a famous rabbi, either who's in their town or who was traveling through town, and they would ask if they could be his Talmud, his disciple. And then they would go and live with that rabbi, travel with that rabbi, follow that rabbi wherever they're going, and learn how to be a rabbi like him. And remember, these students, they were the cream of the crop. They were the Talmudim, in Hebrew, disciple. Student, follower, but a different kind of student than we think about with our idea of Western education. Again, we think of a student who wants to know the information so that you can get the grade, pass the class, get the degree, get a pay increase, whatever it is you're learning that thing for. But this idea of a student, a Talmud, a disciple, wanted to be like the teacher. They wanted to become what the teacher is. That's why it's more like uh, a plumber or a car mechanic, right? You're, you're not just learning those things for a class for fun. I mean, maybe, if that's your thing. But you probably want to then take on that career choice, um, that life. And that meant that students were passionately devoted to their rabbi. And they noted everything that he did and said. This, once you made it to this third level of schooling, if you did, it was 24-7. You would eat, sleep, live with your rabbi. You would literally be following them from town to town. And this, remember, is like a desert-type culture. It's dusty. It's dirty. So there would be this blessing that people would pray over Talmudim, over disciples, over followers. They would say something like, May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. May you follow that closely, that often, that you're just covered in the dust of their footsteps. An apprentice is someone who's with his or her rabbi. Jesus says to, he says to them what? You know, so they're fishermen, and he says, listen, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Now, is Jesus just kind of cheesy? Like, couldn't the God of the universe do a little bit better with wordplay than that? No. Uh, fishers of men was actually a well-known Hebrew idiom. It was something that was said. And, and it was what you'd call a great teacher. A great teacher was a fisher of men in that time. This would be like a rock star rabbi was a fisher of men. Why? Because his teachings and life would capture or hook their imagination, right? And intellect and desires. Your teachings would be so compelling, you'd be hooking people in left and right. You were like the rock star rabbi. So Jesus shows up to these literal fishermen and Jesus is, at that point, becoming a fisher of men. He's getting to be somewhat popular. And he's telling these guys, who would have failed out 
of at least the second round of schooling because they're doing their family's trade, they're fishermen, two of them are even with their dad. He's telling them that if they follow him, they can actually become like him. They could become a rock star rabbi. He's not just using some cheesy wordplay to say that they'll be good at evangelism, though they hopefully will be. He's telling them that they can actually become like him. And that really should blow our minds because they shouldn't. They weren't the cream of the crop. They were pretty regular or less than regular people. That's the invitation. Come, follow me. It's shorthand for become like me. You can become like me, he's telling them. And so, of course, immediately, they drop their nets. They leave their dad behind. They go follow him. It's crazy, but it's crazy for perhaps different reasons than we might initially think. They say, sure, we'll be our, be our rabbi. We want to become like you. Your life, your teachings, they're compelling. They hook us. You've fished us. Help us to do the same. And so following Jesus isn't just, <coughs> excuse me, going where he goes. It's becoming who he is. In fact, I want to tell you a story you might already know. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus sends the disciples out uh, on a boat. He sends them out on a boat while he spends some time in prayer and silence on a mountain. He gets away, it says, by himself to pray. Some time in solitude. And then the next day, it says the boat has already gone some distance. And so Jesus walks out onto the water. And he's approaching them. And they begin to see it's just before dawn, so you can imagine the sun kind of coming up. It's hard to see things. And they see a figure approaching them on the water. So they think, there is a ghost walking on the water towards us. They're terrified, the text says. And then Jesus calls out and he basically says, don't worry, you guys, it's me. It's me, Jesus. And then one of the guys from our text today, Peter, he says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you, to follow you on the water. And Jesus replies one simple but loaded word, come. It's as if the words follow me are hidden beneath those four letters implied within the history, the origin story of these two friends. Come, follow me. I've often thought of Peter as impulsive, and he, he, he is impulsive quite a bit, but I've also thought of him as even prideful in this moment. Why does he think he should be able to walk on water? Like, are you trying to impress the other guys in the boat? 
Are you just impatient? You really want to see Jesus? You're going to kind of get on water to, to meet him halfway. Uh, you just really like extreme sports. You want to, I don't know. What is it, Peter, that makes you want to do this? Of course you're going to sink. Like, you're being prideful. But in the context of a rabbi and apprentice relationship, Peter's request makes perfect sense. Jesus, if this is really you walking on the water, if this is really my rabbi, and I'm really his Talmud, his disciple, his student successor, then I'm invited to become like him. He's doing this. I should try and do this. That's actually one way that it'll prove that it's Jesus. Because he said, I'll be able to do the things that he's doing. I'll become like him. Okay, then I'm going to go out on the water and be with him. And the crazy thing in this text is that Peter actually did. He gets out and at least at first he's walking on the water. He's walking on the water. (laughs) He followed his rabbi's footsteps, right? Not just on the desert, but even on the water. And then it starts to get windy, on the water, and and Peter gets afraid, and it says he starts to sink. He starts to sink. And then he calls out, Lord Jesus, save me. And Jesus does, it says. Jesus immediately grabs him and, and pulls him to safety. And then Jesus asks him, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? I used to think that Peter doubted Jesus's power or maybe Peter doubted his divinity, um, or something like that, and so Jesus is like kind of upset. Why did you doubt me? But it never says, "Why did you doubt me?" There's no reason to assume that Peter doubted anything about Jesus in that moment. Jesus was still standing on water, like. What's he going to doubt? Jesus is still there. And the person he calls out to save him is still Jesus. Jesus is still standing on the water. It doesn't make sense that Peter would doubt the power or personhood of Jesus. So then what does he doubt? He doubts himself. He doubts himself, or more precisely, he doubts his capacity for God to empower him to become like Jesus. He doubts that first invitation to become a fisher of men, to become like his rabbi. The whole point of the call to follow Jesus is to become like Jesus. We are invited to be apprentices to Jesus. We can be with him. We can become like him. We can actually do what he did. Up to this point, you might be thinking, okay, sure, I get it. These disciples literally followed around a person. Okay, well, there was a person there for them to follow around. What am I supposed to do? I've been to church enough times to hear Jesus is like at the right hand of the Father. 
wherever that is, but I know it's not here. So what do I do? How can I follow Jesus? Well, you're right in some ways. The way that we follow Jesus isn't a one-to-one correlation to how those first disciples did. But in Jesus' teachings, particularly in John in 14, he, he talks about how he's going to send this spirit, this Holy Spirit, that's actually going to be, it's going to be even better than being with him physically. And so in a way that is, I'll admit, mysterious, Jesus is still constantly present and available to us through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And so for us to follow Jesus is this. It's to intentionally live in a constant state of awareness of and connection to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Jesus talked about that when he said, abide in me. You can't do anything if you're not with Me, through the Spirit. So to follow Jesus is actually to always have him before you, in the front of your mind, in the everyday activities of your life. It's to commute to work with Jesus. It's to be on that Zoom call with Jesus. It's to clean up, spit up, and change diapers with Jesus. It's to play Legos and tickle your kids with Jesus. It's to go on a romantic date or see your favorite band or watch that play with Jesus. It's to balance your budget with Jesus. It's to sit at the bedside of a sick and dying friend or family member with Jesus. It's to learn to pay attention to the God who is always closer than your very breath. What Brother Lawrence says, practice the presence of God. This, my friends, is if you ever ask me, Matt, what do you think your responsibility is as a pastor? I just say this simple sentence that Eugene Peterson said. The the responsibility of the pastor is to keep the community attentive to God. If you ever wonder how I define my role, that's it. The invitation of those first disciples is the same invitation to us, to become like him. Discipleship is to be formed into the image and likeness of Jesus Jesus Christ. And the reality is we're all disciples of someone or something anyways. We all follow someone or something. We're all being formed by someone or something. We like to think, no, I'm American, okay? I'm the maker of my own destiny. I'm free, baby. I could be whoever I want. No, 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 no. Cultural, political, economical, social, relational forces are at work shaping us into the kind of people they want us to become. Sometimes for good, but more often not. 
And so it's not about are you being discipled? Are you being formed? You are. But what kind of person are you being formed into? There are influences on all of our lives, and they're making us into certain kinds of people. There's no neutral space. A steady diet of Fox News and Facebook articles will slowly mold you into a certain kind of person. A constant consumption of The Daily Show or SNL or Jon Stewart will mold you into a different shape though perhaps not as different as we think. And the question is whether the person we're becoming looks more or less like Jesus. And one of the primary defining texts of the way of Jesus is the Sermon on the Mount. So that's where we're going. That's where we're going. And that's why also right after these classic texts about following Jesus in Matthew 4 comes the Sermon on the Mount. So we can see, we have sort of a rubric for our lives. And so in the coming months, can we, in a truly non-judgmental way, assess if our lives align with the way of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? And if not, and I know for myself there'll be lots of nots, okay? If and where not, we don't align, can we seek to follow Jesus together until in increasing ways we become more and more like him? Are you with me? Jesus says to you and to me today, Come, follow me. Let's pray. Father, I know for myself, and I imagine there are others, we might feel like those students in Jesus' day who, who failed out of the training to become a rabbi. And we might be thinking, are you sure you want to ask us to follow you? The odds of us becoming like you, they're not really stacked in your favor. But God, we want to, with as much as we can this morning, trust in the power of grace Trust in the power of your spirit. Trust in the power of the gospel to make us like you in ways that we perhaps never thought possible. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen.